Welcome to the Indigo Podcast, an exploration of human flourishing at work and beyond. I'm Ben Barron of Indigo Anchor and Cleveland State University. And I'm Chris Everett of Indigo Anchor. For more information, please visit us at www.indigopodcast.com. So today we have a guest. Ben, why don't you tell us a bit about him? Yeah, sure. So today in the podcast, we're delighted to have Joe Allen as our guest. Joe is a professor of industrial and organizational psychology at the University of Utah. He holds a PhD in organizational science from the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. And he previously held faculty appointments at the University of Nebraska Omaha and Creighton University. He is widely published, and his research primarily focuses on the study of workplace meetings, organizational community engagement, and occupational safety and health. He directs the Center for Meeting Effectiveness, housed in the Rocky Mountain Center for Occupational and Environmental Health, and he has provided consulting to numerous nonprofit and for-profit organizations. His research has attracted internal and external grant funding of more than $4 million since 2010. Joe, welcome to the Indigo Podcast. Fabulous. Great to be here. Uh, so today we're going to explore a few topics with Joe uh, that I'm really excited about with a focus on this cool nexus that he has of organizational psychology and the world of healthcare. Specifically, we're curious about um, your research on human behavior within healthcare and what we seem to know about how human behavior contributes to stuff like patient safety and other meaningful outcomes. Uh, how your research also helps us understand more about communication and its importance in creating adaptive, resilient teams and organizations. And uh, definitely not lastly, but what we'll cover today is what implications these areas of research have for leaders and those around them. Gosh, what a great lineup of topics. You know, I think first, though, I'd love to hear a little bit more um about Joe's background, because I think for our listeners, that's going to be interesting. He has a rather unique background, and he's an academic, um, but he doesn't work in a psychology or a management department where a lot of people with um, backgrounds like his and mine, we have similar backgrounds academically, uh, most of us end up in psychology or management departments, but he's not in either of those at at the moment. Um, So I think it's a very interesting story. And uh, so I guess, you know, specifically, Joe, how did you end up being an industrial and organizational psychologist working in the Division of Occupational and Environmental Health in the School of Medicine at the University of Utah? Yeah, it's kind of uh, an interesting story in the sense that when I when I finished my education, uh, pretty close to the same time that, that you did, Ben, um, I was all in on being a psychologist and ended up at a, a, a wonderful university, Creighton University. Uh, working in a psychology department, and uh, I was enjoying life there, teaching a lot of classes, uh, making a lot of uh, good friends, and so forth. Uh, but I didn't realize that I wasn't completely happy until I changed jobs just down the street to the University of Nebraska at Omaha, and started training graduate students. And the University of Nebraska at Omaha is part of the Nebraska system, which includes a, a medical center. So when I started working there, there were opportunities that started to emerge to apply industrial organizational psychology and organizational science to healthcare. And as those, as those emerged, I started to do a little bit more of that and then a little bit more. And over time, I was you know, going up for tenure to be an associate professor, then to going up for full professor. And as I started gathering my full professor materials together, I started to realize that unbeknownst to my own you know, plan, uh, I had started to build this expertise in occupational environmental health. Uh, much more than I had ever anticipated. And so as I was working on that, I had a, I had a colleague of mine, a friend of mine, who had, we'd written some grants together, and uh, she was at, she's at the, at the Drexel University. And uh, she, she noticed a, a job uh, posting at the University of Utah in the Department of Family and Preventive Medicine and the uh, Occupational Environmental Health and said, hey, you ever thought about living in Utah? And <laughs> I had just submitted these, these materials to a full professor at Nebraska. Wow. Wow. And so it was both weird timing and perfect timing because I was all my materials were ready to go. So I just literally repackaged them just a little bit, sent them off to the University of Utah and uh, was was hired uh, to work in their in their medical school. And so wow. they, they saw my 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 building crescendo, as it were, of of work in healthcare, and thought this guy could really come in 
bring uh, organizational psychology and organizational science to bear on the questions that they were curious about. Now, tell me, tell me, or I'd say define for our listeners what occupational and, you know, all those big words attached to what you do, environmental <laughs> health. And I mean, are we, we're not healing trees, right? <laughs> no, no. So this is, you know, there's a lot of jobs that, that people do uh, in, in this world that are not necessarily safe. And so we, we provide them lots of equipment and gear and other things to help them be safe. The challenge, though, is people don't often choose to uh, don those gear, uh, choose to uh, engage in the behaviors that they know they're supposed to do. And so occupational environmental health is about, okay, how do we convince people to wear the appropriate gear and how do we change the environment or, or understand the environment so that way we can mitigate the risks and the dangers that are immediate as well as the exposures that can lead to long-term health and well-being issues. You know, so it's not, you can work in a, you know, in a mine, mining coal for 20, 30, 40 years, right? And you're not going to, you're not going to immediately have problems with lung, lung cancer or black lung or any of these other things that, that, that have emerged historically speaking uh, more Mm -hmm. so than today. But over time, these things develop. And so occupational environmental health is really about how do we keep our workers healthy and how do we convince them to do what they need to do to stay healthy? Yeah, I think that's super, super awesome field, Ben. Yeah, you know, I think it is. And, uh, you know, what you were hinting at there, I think, Joe, is just, you know, the um, the distinction between kind of an engineering approach towards occupational safety from, you know, we can, there's all these things that we can do to kind of take the human out of the equation or make things um, safer, maybe from a human factor standpoint and so forth. And that's that's all awesome stuff. And it's really important. Uh, and then there's the, you know, the behavioral types of stuff. And we'll get into that in a little bit around, you know, organizational culture and leadership and all these different things that start to play into what are the, what are the norms and the values and what we even pay and pay attention to in the workplace and, you know, what constitutes a hazard and all that kind of stuff. And it's, I think it's just fascinating. And I, I love the fact that you as an, as an industrial and organizational psychologist are in a medical environment um, for a variety of reasons. Um, and one of them is just that, you know, I have long seen kind of a, a need for that. Um, you know, as, as our listeners may have, I think I've mentioned this on our podcast before, but, you know, uh, my older brother is an anesthesiologist. And, uh, you know, so Chris's father is, is also a physician and um, we've done consulting work in healthcare. And I think there's um, a real need for a lot more of this kind of behavioral approach towards um, how people uh, interact with each other, how they talk with each other, all that kind of stuff. So I think it's just fantastic that you're doing this type of work uh, in the healthcare um, setting um, as an IO psychologist, because I think we have a lot to, to bring to that. And so thank you for that background. And I th- yeah, what about, what about your research? Um, you want to talk a little bit about your research on human behavior within healthcare? Sure. So one of the uh, one of the areas of research that I kind of got roped into early on uh, while I was at Nebraska uh, was there's a wicked problem in in, uh, in hospitals, and by wicked problem I mean a, a complex problem that has lots of uh, lots of uh, sources of of uh, error and issue that can can arise that make it very difficult to just solve easily, and that problem is patient falls. So a patient shows up, they've got one, you know, they, pre- they have pre- a presenting condition, whatever it may be. They're there, they're take- being taken care of, and for whatever reason, uh, they then have a fall while they're in the hospital. They fall down, whether it be in the restroom or getting out of bed or whatever it may be, and then they acquire another condition. They break a hip, they get a skin tear, they get, you know, they knock their head, and, and so then they've got a concussion. So there's There's... And worse, that and as you can might imagine, and so uh, I was brought in to to introduce something called the post fall huddle, which is similar to an after action review, which is a type of meeting where people reflect on what they what's happened. Right now, an after action review can you can do after just normal operations. Nothing has to go wrong for you to do an after action review. But with a post fall huddle, some something went wrong. Somebody mm-hmm. fell down and potentially got hurt. Right. And so in this particular case, 
there's immediate demand, immediate desire for people to start pointing fingers and blaming, right? Mm. It's immediate, oh, you didn't do that, and you didn't do this, and you didn't do this. What's wrong with you people? What's wrong? You know, that sort of thing. And so my, my job was to come in and provide appropriate training on, okay, how can we use this to be a, a reflection, to learn what the root cause was? Maybe it does, someone did make a mistake, but why did they make that mistake? What, what led them to that mistake? What's the root cause of the issue here? And so as we dug deeper and deeper, we found that through that reflection process, uh, repeat falls for that same patient basically went to zero. And falls in the future, you know, for future patients started to decline in many of these hospitals. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, Ben and I both come from a military background and we have this um, ubiquitous AAR or after action review process that, that we go through. And, you know, that's used with some mixed success. Uh, you know, if people don't actually learn from their AARs, they just do them because they have to, you know, that that's mm-hmm. not too helpful, but, um, yeah, we, we do a lot of that. And then I, I've also had the manufacturing environment and larger enterprise organizations that, that whole documented process of root cause analysis. So it sounds like some of that, you know, you kind of got the form that's set up for healthcare, but, has some unique pieces to it. Yeah. The interesting thing about after action reviews, as you already mentioned is, and debriefs and huddles and a lot of different names we call these things is they're used in a lot of different industries already. Uh, the challenge though, is that we know that there are better and worse ways to do it. You know, where there's uh, for example, you might have a leader who comes in and says, okay, this is what happened. And then you have one narrative and anything that anyone saw or that wasn't exactly consistent with the, with, with that leader's you know, perspective is filtered out. And so there's learning that doesn't occur because the perspectives of others are not, are not either allowed to be, to be shared or because the leader just basically said, this is how it was, they're, they're, they're afraid to contradict or create conflict uh, in, in that context. So there's some real uh, interesting, simple things that uh, individuals in those contexts across these various organizations and industries can do to really make these much more effective. Yeah, you know, Joe, one thing that you wrote about in uh, you know one of the studies that you did on um, after action reviews with with regard to the the post fall huddles was about this idea of team reflexivity. So you know whether or not the the team is actually reflecting appropriately on what happened and how it could be addressed and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, I just, I think it's, it's important for everyone, all of us to understand just how, how hard that is for, to get a team to do that and do it well. I think it, it's not a natural thing. I think left to their own devices, I, I, I don't think most teams really do that well. What do you think? Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's natural for humans to try to uh, protect themselves hmm. if they think protection is necessary in the sense that if, if something went wrong or nearly went wrong, and we can say this is with the post-fall huddle, you know, where, where a nurse maybe did something that wasn't exactly correct or a, a pharmacist wasn't aware of another pharmacist prescribing a similar medication and therefore there was an interaction. So the, the, when something did go wrong and a patient fell, right? And this is across industries as well. If something went wrong, and you're and now you're doing this this reflection on it, this after action review, there's a real uh, inherent human nature. I want to protect my ego. I want to protect mm-hmm. my job. I want to protect myself from blame, from ridicule, etc. I didn't and, do it. Joe did it. That's right. <laughs> it was their fault, or uh, you know, it was this, or it was that. We're we're looking for reasons to not put the blame on ourselves. And I think the, the, that, that is probably the biggest challenge to team reflexivity because it's all about protecting oneself when really if the team were to reflect and to learn from each other, whether they made a mistake or not, then the team actually does better uh, mm-hmm. as a whole, individually and collectively. But you got to get past that immediate reaction, that immediate human desire to protect your own you know, position and situation and, and job and whatever get over yourself and try to get better together. Um, and that's not, that's not consistent with human nature, particularly in, you know, the U S culture, uh, of high individualism and so forth. So, yeah. Yeah. So are there aspects of, I would imagine aspects of leadership or team 
facilitation skills, um, maybe just norms around uh, risk and learning and failure, all that kind of stuff. How does that all play into it? Like, how do you how do you actually move a team to be more uh, reflective um, with regards to you know what went wrong or what could have been done better? Yeah. So the, you know, a lot of it comes back to a leader and a lot, and a lot of these organizations where you have after action reviews, there's, there's this hierarchy that mm. exists. And so the, a lot of times there's a clearly identified leader who is running these after action reviews or these debriefs. Right. And so because of that, there's a real opportunity for these leaders to set the stage. Right. So if the leader says, I want to hear what everyone thinks, I want to hear what everyone's, I want to know what everyone saw. I want to, I want to understand. And then they proceed to listen. Right. And they proceed to allow everyone and they, and they, you know, they point to the person who hasn't said anything and said, do you have anything you'd like to add and, and sincerely want to do that? So there's an active listening and active encouraging going on there. Then you're going to, you're going to create an environment, a, a team environment that is, is psychologically safe. It's safe mm. for you it's safe for your ego, your self-esteem to own the situation. If, if you made a mistake, you own it. If you didn't make a mistake, you own your piece of whatever happened, right? And mm -hmm. then you share that. And so it's really, particularly on these strong hierarchy organizations, healthcare is one of those. You know, military I'm, is one of those. Mm -hmm. You know, in those situations, the leader really has an opportunity to set the stage correctly for a good sharing environment. And if they do that, then learning can occur. And I think some ego can be set at the door uh, when when some team reflexivity can can actually happen, uh, and and some good things can occur there. Yeah, yeah. You know, one thing I've noticed in the military, um, so you know, I'm still active in the reserves and so forth, and so I've gotten to see over the past, um, well, 17 and a half years now, you know, kind of what happens as you um, ascend in rank and so forth. And it's, it, it actually can be really hard to, it takes a little bit of time to develop those norms around, I actually do want to hear, you know, what you have to say. I actually do want you to tell me if I'm screwing things up. Because as you get more senior, there's kind of this, this norm that also develops where, you know, your jokes be become funnier magically and um, that kind of stuff. <laughs> where, where, and, and uh, you know, I don't know, maybe you've seen this, Chris, too, but it's, um, you know, we, we want our leaders, especially our, our higher ranking leaders to, um, you know, like what we say and so forth. And so there's some of this kind of self filtering, self censoring behavior, um, that can happen. And so I, you know, I think there's probably not a magical solution to that. I think that it really requires, um, some, uh, you know, a track record of honestly demonstrating that humility, uh, and that, that candor from the leader, um, and maybe even sometimes, you know, removing oneself from the situation, even physically to say, you know, have a conversation about this without me in the room. Um, and then we'll talk about it later or coming up with some other creative ways to, uh, to kind of remove the, the barriers of that status stuff. And I don't know if you've seen any of that in healthcare or if, uh, if you have any reaction to those types of ideas. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, so if you're an established leader and you haven't necessarily been or weren't aware of good facilitation practices of encouraging participation, creating a psychologically safe environment, et cetera. You, 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 yeah, you can turn the switch and start to do that, but it's going to take time. Mm -hmm. you know, you're going to have to actually convince your people that you have you actually do want to hear from them uh, and that you've turned a le new leaf as it were, if, if it, or, or just, you know, introducing new things can, can lead to a little trepidation on the part of, of others. So yeah, you, there's, it takes time for these things to take, take effect. If you're an established leader in, a, in an established group, I think yeah. also in healthcare, you're, you're absolutely right. There's, you know, if you have, if, if the MD shows up to the post fall huddle, it's pretty common for that MD to say, this is what happened. And everyone say, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, since you know, it happens, why should we yeah. contribute? Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so it's it, similar, I, I imagine in the military, similar to the fire service, uh, another group that I've worked a lot with. So yeah, it, it, if, if the boss or the boss's boss or whomever is perceived as being the person in charge shows up, unless they've established an environment that allows for sharing, um, they can, they can end up derailing the whole process. Um, and, Deliberately or inadvertently. 
Yeah, absolutely. Some of the, some of the things I see that big challenges to the post huddle after action root cause all that stuff is some of the stuff that I see is okay. They do a good AAR right, and then where does that knowledge get captured to where new people onboarded don't have to suffer the same failures that their predecessors did? Right. Some of that safety culture type stuff. Um, or in the military, wow, we're going to make a movement to this training site. We only do this once a year. Well, hey, who put, where, where are the AARs from last year? So we know how to plan. Uh, uh, nobody knows. And, and which shows a culture. And now not every unit's this way. There's some units that really have this lockdown tight, but it definitely tells you about the quality of that organization when they don't even it's not even worth having the sharing of learnings if you're not capturing that learnings. Um, you also see this in enterprise project management organizations where they, you know, uh, I have mixed reviews on the PMP, but the PMP actually has a robust things about what they call organizational process assets, which this is kind of how we do things around here. And at the end of a project as part of these project closing activities, you will, capture some learnings, update the way the organization executes pro, uh, projects. I never see that done. They're like, are you kidding? <laughs> You're going to take a week and a half to document and socialize lessons learned? No, we're kicking off another project before you even finish the one you're on, right? And so I think like with some of your research on this huddles and the stuff that we're trying to become, you know, what they call a learning organization, you have to be able to capture this stuff and then have a platform for that to be marinated throughout the organization. Yeah. Chris, what you're talking about is what we refer to as a multi-team system. And right. so what's interesting about that is I don't, I, I don't recall if I shared that specific research with, with you guys, but um, the post-fall huddle is intended to be embedded within a multi-team system where the huddle is, it takes place and immediately, either during or as a result of the huddle, a post-fall huddle form is completed where they they record some of the information, mm. the key information, root cause, et cetera, from the huddle. And then it goes to a, a, a fall coordination team within the hospital that then reviews all the post-fall huddle forms to look for consistencies, right? What are the systemic issues here that if we were to introduce a, a change – Across all of our floors, we might see a change in this problem, right? And so, again, that's that's how we implemented it because we knew that we had teams of teams. We have nurses, we have right. doctors, we have pharmacists, we have nutritionists, we have PT, uh, we have you know OT, like all these different uh, doctors who may have and and nurses and professionals having touch points with the with the uh, with the, the patients, mm -hmm. and so. We needed a way to gather the information, create a separate team to then evaluate that information, and then you know disseminate that out uh, with the blessing of administration and leadership to make those changes, to make wholesale changes if necessary in how things work. But I think you're absolutely right. A lot of organizations, uh, military included, they have a lessons learned department who, who mines the data occasionally, but that doesn't necessarily get back to the rank and file, to the people that are actually uh, boots on the ground, literally. Uh, doing the work. So I think there's there's opportunities that are missed in a lot of organizations because they don't recognize the the, the possibilities of their already existing multi-team system. Right. I think the thing, and to Ben's point a little bit earlier, is if at a minimum, this doesn't come for free, this is going to cost some organizational time, you know? So if you're running your organization super lean and and everybody just barely gets stuff out the door, whatever shipping product is for you, uh, seeing a patient, answering uh, call center calls or whatever, you're, you don't accidentally get better. Like maybe people self-organize a little bit, but you actually have to devote some time and that time needs to be structurally supported by what, however you're organized. Uh, as a scrum team, a little bit of self-organization, that means as a collective cohort, you're gonna say, guys, we need to do a sprint review and a sprint retrospective, that kind of thing. If you're in a hierarchy and it's not getting done in a self-organized way, you gotta programmatically build it into how your organization operates if you wanna get better.
Yeah, yeah, that's that's really important. You know, one thing I was just wondering too when uh, when you're describing um, all this work, Joe, is uh, it seems like the post fall huddle was a a really good um, kind of um, I guess isolated or compact type of event that you were able to study well. And I'm just wondering, are there any? I don't know the answer to this. I was just wondering if you do. Um, are there any other types of things within the healthcare environment um, where those similar types of approaches um, might be helpful or things that you're aware of that where it's been being introduced aside from the post-fall so model? Referring to debriefs or right. after action review type things? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a pre-brief and post-brief whenever a surgery team uh, does a surgery. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's also uh, simulations that are done with, with medical students they do lots of different simulations on cadavers and other other thing other uh, procedures. And when they do that, they 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 often have a pre-brief, but not always. But they always have a post you know, post brief, a debrief, right, uh, of how things went uh, in their in their processes. So it's it's used quite often in a lot of different settings. The interesting thing about that is there's been limited access uh, to those settings. I know of a couple people uh, out of Clemson that have had been able to get access to those those particular uh, interactions mm -hmm. that you know are, are very similar to a post-fall huddle, uh, and have been able to start introducing uh, good facilitation practices and so forth in those settings, and, and have been seeing uh, some interesting changes there. So there are there are other places within healthcare where this is already, or at least the huddle or debrief idea is already being used, uh, but I don't believe in in many cases that they they know the best practices. I don't know to what extent, and this is just the honest truth. I don't know to what extent they they capture those learnings either. Right. So. Yeah. You know, another thing I'm wondering too is, you know, so as of this recording, you're relatively new in your current position at uh, in the me medical school there at University of Utah. Um, I'm wondering, you know, how, what opportunities there are for in integrating some of the findings from your research around how to you know, make a team more reflective and how to do these in a way that actually produces some results and, and can be good for patient safety, et cetera, um, at the medical school level. So that when, as people are going through their initial training and then getting out there, uh, they already have a good baseline for what this should look like and how to get the most out of it. Yeah, there's some interesting and neat opportunities. Uh, I haven't yet, you know, I'm, I'm very early in my uh, time here and I'm just meeting sure. a lot of people and so forth, you know, f four months in kind of thing. Uh, but there are some really neat opportunities in that regard because, as I mentioned, there, there, a lot of the, uh, you know, medical doctors in training, um, they are doing a lot of uh, hands-on activities, right? Mm -hmm. uh, whether it be surgeries or any number of other type of thing, right? And because they're doing that, there's, there's ample opportunity for them to engage in a debrief or or meetings in general, right? And so there's lots of lots of knowledge that could be could be uh, trained and shared there to develop them, so that way when they get to uh, their residency and then to their 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 actual final resting spot, as it were, in terms of a job, uh, they'll be able to do those things, know those things, and do them when interacting with others, and maybe minimize the effects of hierarchy uh, on the way people interact and the way people act in these, whether it be post-fall huddles or debriefs or whatever. So yeah, there's there's a real opportunity there, one that that was just barely beginning to be explored at Nebraska, and then I decided to leave. So I don't know to what extent that's carrying on. Uh, you know, my initial conversation with them uh, kind of fizzled as I, as I left. And so I'm hoping that I can uh, step that up and, and do that here. Uh, and then go go more uh, broadly as as those things start to emerge. Yeah, I think that's really awesome. Um, so another thing that you've dealt a lot with is high reliability organizations. And, you know, when you deal with the falls and the AAR process, you know, that helps organization improve. Let's talk about first, what is a high reliability organization? And um, how does somebody move along that that kind of maturity scale to become even more reliable? Yeah. So a high reliability organization, uh, essentially what that is, it's an organization that works in a dangerous environment or does work that that is considered dangerous or risky. Uh, but for whatever reason, they don't have the kind of accidents or injuries or deaths or property damage or whatever that you, you would kind of expect to happen a little more regularly than they do. Hmm. Right. 
So some good examples of that. We've already been talking about healthcare. Opening up a human and digging around in there is not a safe thing to do. It's just not, right? Mm-hmm. And, and yet we don't kill people as often as we probably sh- would if we just open them up anywhere. You know, so we, so that's, a, that's a highly reliable organization where we're, we're doing all sorts of things to mitigate that, that danger. Others would, you know, like nuclear power plants. You're playing with nuclear stuff. That's not inherently safe. And yet you right. count the number of times a nuclear power plant is melted down on one hand, right? Uh, you know, you got military. You're carrying around weapons. You're being shot at. The people are sh- you know, you're shooting at people. You know that's that's part of the engagement. You know that's that's going on there. And yet, thankfully, fewer than you know more people die than we would like, but fewer than you would expect, given that we're throwing pieces of metal all over the place at people, right? Mm-hmm. And so these are organizations that are they're high reliable organizations, highly reliable, working in a dangerous context where more than the damage and danger and, and outcomes that we see um, would likely happen if you put any, you know, people that are not as highly trained as those folks into those settings. And so I think that's that's the key here is that these organizations are doing things to mitigate uh, the danger and the risk that that they're experiencing on the job, whether that be through equipment or gear or through processes and procedures, uh, through checklists, uh, which are wonderful tools. Uh, and so they, they do all these things and there's various hallmarks of higher liability, but they do these things and they, and they reduce that, that error to, uh, to levels that are slightly more acceptable, uh, even though we're always trying to, and this is a hallmark of a higher liability organization, always trying to get better, always mm-hmm. trying to reduce those errors and reduce those, those injuries, deaths and damage and so forth to, to zero. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, this is a, a common research uh, interest that you and I have, and um, yeah. the uh, you know the the hallmarks of high reliability you know comes back from Carl Weick's work way back when, and you know we'll put some stuff up in the show notes about that, and I, I recommend to anybody out there, um, regardless of what you do in in terms of your career, uh, reading his uh, his book that he wrote with Kathleen Sutcliffe. Uh, managing the unexpected. It's just a very good book. And, uh, you know, you mentioned these, ha- these hallmarks of high reliability and, you know, one of them is having a preoccupation with failure and actually talking about, um, knowing exact, knowing explicitly what it is that we as an organization or as a team are trying to avoid. And then, um, talking about that, taking proactive steps to, to, uh, to make sure that it doesn't happen. And, you know, I, I just think sometimes that <clears throat> that approach is, is super helpful and it, it flies in the face a little bit of some of the, I don't know, kind of more romantic visions of leadership, always being about rah, rah, you know, keep it up. You're you know being inspirational all the time. And maybe, you know, sometimes that happens, I think, to the detriment of um, really exploring, you know, what might happen, what could happen. Uh, and some of the, this preoccupation with failure that can be really important to talk about. Yeah. I think you have to know when to be rah, rah and when to delve a little deeper and say, yeah. okay, something wasn't quite right here. Let's, let's talk more about this. Let's figure this out. Which item of the checklist was skipped? What's going on? That sort of thing. And I think a good leader will hopefully learn to recognize when to be rah, rah and when to eh, maybe not be quite so mm-hmm. uh, enthusiastic uh, and and really dig deeply with their people to understand uh, to to engage in that preoccupation with failure um, because failure is a bad thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but one of the one of the differences that I see is like out in the corporate world is everybody's like, "Awesome, here's our business plan," or "Hey, we just sat down with Deloitte and we've got the super strategy map," or blah, you know. And here's how we're going to be successful. But when we look at, you know, like we both live in Utah uh, here, Joe, and, you know, the Avalanche Center, that it's not a if they're going to have to do a rescue and navigate really dangerous ter- terrain and probably get hurt. It's, it's a win, right? Uh, if you're on a ship, uh, there are going to be injuries of people while you're out at sea. I know if I have to walk 800 guys with, you know, massive military equipment on their backs, just one mile through the woods with nobody shooting at them, we've got at least six sprained ankles or, or whatever that number is. And, and it's that it's the acceptance of failure 
as part of your daily life and that that's going to happen and that you need to plan for it so you can mitigate it as much as possible and always be learning, you know, especially mm -hmm. if there's a life and death situation, you're going to be more inclined to take a learning from how that person passed away because you're working in that same environment, right? And so I, I kind of like that difference in perspective where, you know, certain businesses, now they'll generally have, like most mature companies and organizations have a baseline of this. But I think if they really dig into the data and research around uh, high reliability organizations that um, they can gain a lot. So, so, okay, so it's the focus on mitigating the failure. What are some communication trends that you see within a uh, high reliability organization? What's communication look like within those? Well, that's a good question. Uh, it's communication. It depends on the organization in a lot of, a lot of extent, but in a high reliability organization, uh, Everything we talked about earlier about uh, creating a safe sharing environment where people can bring up things when they happen uh, is is a is a key attribute of a high reliability organization. It means that the the lowest person on the on the hierarchy should be able to speak up and say, "Wait a minute, look at that over there," or "Wait a minute, what about this?" Uh, that sort of thing, and not feel like they're going to be uh, ridiculed, persecuted, uh, you know, got, get in trouble, that sort of thing. And I think, you know, whether you're military or fire service or healthcare, or whatever, I don't know if that's really truly felt uh, by the, the, the lowest people on the totem pole, as it were, you know, right. the, the, the new, the new hires, the, the new MDs, the new nurses, that sort of thing. I don't know, even though we preach this a lot, I don't know if we've really communicated effectively that, yeah, you really can speak up. And you should speak up, and you need to speak up. But I think that's that's a really important thing. That flow of information, top to bottom, needs to be and should be, uh, you know, normalized within a higher liability organization. And I think some of them do it. Yeah, yeah, and you know, so you kind of alluded to it here, and you explicitly mentioned it earlier. Um, this idea of psychological safety. Um, yeah. What's that about? So psychological safety. That's that's essentially the feeling that um, you as a person, you know, as an individual are safe to, to share who you are as it were uh, and the things you see and the things you hear and the things that you're doing with those in your organization as you work and ideally inside and outside of work. Right. Mm -hmm. I think too often we, we segment, and this has been, you know, kind of tradition in a lot of organizations that we segment ourselves to exclude the things outside of work uh, from work and there, thereby excluding really possibly some good ideas from being brought forward, some creative, innovative ideas and so forth. So I think in, in, in corporate world and so forth, I think we really need to encourage this idea of psychological safety, both in terms of what we said earlier, this whole blaming thing. We got we to gotta stop that so we can learn from each other, but also just being individually feeling you're safe psychologically, self-esteem, ego, etc., to be who you are, express that, know that it's valued. That's why you were hired in the first place kind of thing. Right. And then, and then bring that forward in a meaningful way to allow for innovation, creativity, and the kinds of, uh, adapt adaption, adaptation mm -hmm. rather, uh, that is necessary to succeed in our very complex, uh, globalized, uh, economy and, and corporations and society that we have. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I think uh, a big part of that is, you know, the willingness in a group, in a team to take those interpersonal risks, right? So, you know, um, I think this ties in well, Chris, with, you know, some of the stuff we've seen and done with teams and with groups about, you know, differentiation and not being kind of emotionally fused with other people um, so that you can feel like you have that ability to um, dissent within the team that you can say, you know, it seems like everyone thinks this one way, but I'm going to be the one who says, I don't think that's right. Or I think we should do something else. Yeah. It's so interesting. So, you know, everybody, I, I don't know, fantasizes or has this fantasy ideal of the dot-com startup, you know, which was really just maybe too, too skeezy, uh, 
software developers sitting in a ratty garage while their mom paid rent, <laughs> right? <laughs> but but bear with me here. So like the culture in that environment is if you want to leave 12 empty Mountain Dew cans on your work desk console, you flipping could, right? <laughs> Contrast that on the other end of the spectrum where everything is sterilized. You can't bring yourself uh, somebody that onboards in that kind of organization is going to feel very rigid and tight because they don't know what the norms are. But guess what? They're going to be easy. The norms are be like a Best Buy Old Navy. You know, you're a cookie cutter seen in every town in America, right? You've completely neutered and sterilized. Or you see this other organization that's kind of this like hybrid. We're completely sterilized and have completely neutered our employees so they can't bring their whole person to work but we've got a beer keg, <laughs> right? You know? And so like, I really liked when you're talking about that, Joe, is like, we've got to provide an environment for humans to exist. It's going to make work way more fun to be around. It's going to also help your employees develop more emotional and personal resilience as they learn to interact in respectful ways with people that are different than them, that have different ideas. But out of that environment, you're going to have, at least in software, you're going to have better products. And in a realm of safety and high reliability organizations, you're going to have people thriving and socially sharing these things amongst themselves that, you know, in times and ways that a norm formalized and command and control type system might not capture. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think it's important to note that, you know, these high reliability organizations they're not error-free organizations. These are organizations that due to their, uh, the way that they interact socially and they communicate and they uh, are noticing and watching for certain hazards and so forth, they catch those small things before they become big ones. And you know, the, the idea is that this type of mentality, these types of interaction patterns don't just need to exist in those high-risk um, types of environments. And in fact, um, has a lot of applicability uh, kind of across the board, as we've already mentioned, um, to other types of industries uh, where you have teams that, are, that where there's a high level of psychological safety, where they um, can catch small things before they become big, big problems. They you know, are very well attuned to those weak signals of either opportunity or danger um, and can really adapt uh, quickly. So I think there's a lot that we can learn from those types of organizations. Yeah. And Chris, what you mentioned there in terms of uh organizations that uh, make it difficult for you to be who you are. Uh, what you're kind of describing is this idea that organizations have culture, you know, and they, and because of the culture they have, whether it be tied to their higher liability, you know, situation like, uh, like Ben was just describing or whether it be other things that can inadvertently create an impossibility around someone's, you know, who they are br bringing that to work. Right. Right. And so we have to think about and be more deliberate in, in understanding what our culture communicates. You know, mm -hmm. we here at Pepsi or we here at Coca-Cola or we here at, you know, you know, what name the old Navy, name the company. Right. You know, we want to have a mission statement. We want to have a vision statement. We want to have these policies and procedures. We, we create these these rigid structural attributes of the organization that then constrain the behavior to the point where culture becomes and, and, and socialization in those organizations becomes so constrained that you, you get this cookie cutter corporate worker mm -hmm. who is afraid to bring this new idea they thought of while they were vegging out to the latest Netflix, you know, show or <laughs> whatever. Right. They like they have this, they have this epiphany on the weekend. How dare they think about work on the weekend, you know, but they did. And, and, and now they can't the work was awesome and it yeah. wasn't neutered. You That's know? right. They were allowed to think about it in a way that they hadn't thought about it before because they weren't sitting in their cubicle and, and walking back and forth to the, the coffee machine and not feeling like they could say anything to their boss because their boss didn't want them to talk, speak up in the last meeting. You know? And so I think we've created a cultural environment in a lot of organizations that, un, you know, constrains innovation and creativity. It constrains mm -hmm. people's psychological safety. It makes it impossible or difficult at least to speak up and stand out. And then we find out, well, Bob over there spoke up and now Bob's the, you know, a, a partner in the organization. Right. right. And so we, we see these examples of speaking up, but we also see the other people who disappear. <laughs> well, and it can be so... crushed. A lot of that stuff can be crushed. So if you're yeah. in a place where there is high legal liability for failure, 
and you're in an organization or environment, you know, industry where failure is going to happen regardless, right? Um, well, uh, lots of times it's like, okay, we're going to have everything dialed down so that when the lawyers come around, we can say we followed these legally defensible procedures, right? And it becomes sterilized. And you basically, I see it all the time where the leader will chill out or cool out anybody below them from saying anything. Everybody has their, oh, well, Billy lost a finger. This is what happens. And it's just cut and dry so they can get back on to work. Okay. I, I understand why that would develop, right? Everybody's scared of that risk, but you can still from that platform grow. You know, you don't have to stop at that legally defensible place. And I think it's even better if you can say, not only are we here, here's our learnings from the last year and how we've improved. And anybody can speak out on these things and you can meet both of those criteria. Yeah, I think that's actually true. I think there's there's a lot of flexibility once you meet that minimal uh, legal criteria <laughs> in what your organization can do right? Mm -hmm. In terms of culture, in terms of ways, ways people interact, that sort of thing. So we understand there's a minimum standard um, and, and, and we need to abide by those minimum standards as it were. But once we get past that, what are the other things that we're in, you know, we're creating and what culture that we're creating through our policies, procedures, practices, vision, mission, et cetera, that are, you know, constraining our people in ways that we don't really mean to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we've uh, talked now about your work and, and how it relates to some really important outcomes like patient safety uh, in the healthcare context. Uh, we've talked a little bit about some more, some of this additional research on communication and social interaction, how it's important for adaptability and resilience in teams. Um, I think we could maybe turn our attention now to some of the implications for this research and maybe try to, we can work together here and try to distill out some some of those things that leaders and others um, in healthcare or other types of contexts, um, what they should do based upon what we've talked about here today. Yeah, so kind of the thing that comes to mind to me is that we we often think of these debriefs or post-fall huddles or after-action reviews as being something that that they do over there in, in the fire service or in the police service or in healthcare or whatever, and we think oftentimes in our corporate environments that those don't really apply to us. We're not doing anything dangerous or whatever. Mm. And I think uh, one of the things I want to make sure we, you know, as an implication for leaders here is that even though we've been talking about healthcare and we've been talking about, you know, military, and we've been talking about high reliability organizations, there's no reason most of these things can't immediately be translated into the corporate environment. Mm -hmm. Right? Didn't we just complete a, a report on a project? Didn't we recently complete the development of a new you know widget over here? Whatever it may be, whatever the, the latest thing was, we can get our team together. We can have a reflection and do so in a, in a way that in, encourages participation and, and, and increases psychological safety that doesn't constrain them from a cultural perspective, you know, from an organizational cultural perspective, that sort of thing. We can do those things right within the corporation for you know for these regular operations that we do uh, and and i think that's that's a key implication for me is that this is not just about you know what these organizations in dangerous environments can do yeah yeah absolutely i think it can uh, definitely apply to other types of contexts um and you know a lot of it comes back and maybe this is just my bias uh being um just for my own personal interest and so forth but i think a lot of it does come back to uh, how you position things as a leader, how, how you facilitate team interaction or don't as a leader. And I think uh, what I've noticed, at least in my own practical experience, is that if you leave these things to their own devices, then usually you know, you're not going to get the outcome you want. Um, and sometimes you can unintentionally create an environment in which people feel like they can't speak up or they can't be different or they can't have um, some sort of innovative idea just because they, they want to, they value kind of agreement with the group over being candid and being, uh, being, a, a, you know, dissenting in, in that context. Right. You know, one of the meeting styles that I see, especially in command and control environment is the brief, the leader or round Robin. So there's some agenda maybe, and 
you know, the person that's in charge is sitting at the end of the desk and it's like, all right, person to the left. Okay, next, <laughs> next person to the left, right? And everybody goes around and that is not a format for engaging this kind of creativity and growth and reflection organizations. Or I've seen AARs conducted and I need three things we should keep doing. Oh, you had a fourth? No, it's okay. We only accept three. Um, all right, now now we need three because the form has three on it, right? Or right. something like that. And it, it's super, super rigid. And like, so so much of our episode here has been about talking about how the leader facilitates this. If you're an HR or if you're a senior leader, these behaviors aren't generally modeled around. You need some kind of training and development process to teach people, one, how to conduct a daggone meeting that doesn't squelch creativity, right? Mm -hmm. Two, how to facilitate because, you know, Ben, you and I talk about the Shawshank Redemption effect. You know, they've been institutionalized. All your workers that have grown up in these other environments have learned, uh, oh, I'm at another round robin meeting. Okay. They don't know how to bring their whole self to work unless it's on the odd chance they're at one of those better organizations that does. So, you kind of got to attack it from a couple fronts, you know, provide that leader training and not just a book on boxing and send them into the ring. Check in to see how those leaders are facilitating those meetings, right? Two, you got to like check in with your people, right? Do they feel, you know, there's different ways of surveys and different ways you can measure with this organization. Do people feel that they can bring their whole self to work? And, um, do they feel that their managers are facilitating a high reliability organization, safety-based culture, all of those kinds of things? And then, and it's not in a way that you can place blame and give somebody the boot, but for, you know, training from the top, facilitating and training from the bottom to create that stuff. Yeah. I mean, what you're describing there is, is kind of the, 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 Best, best practice, as it were, in terms of training and development of, of people, right? Train them on what to do and then hold them accountable to what you've trained them on what to do and ask people who are, you, you know, who didn't get trained, how are these people doing on what you trained them to do, right? So you're, 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 you're describing exactly what, what organizations should do, whether it be for this specific thing on facilitation for creativity and innovation within their meetings uh, and creating that psychologically safe environment when reflect doing reflection meetings on what recently happened. You're, you're talking about the best best practices here, but I think the biggest thing that I have found with organizations, whether it become related to meetings or just about any other training, is we often don't hold people accountable to to do what we've trained them to do. You know, unless right. it's something that's required in order for the widget to go out the door, it's not. We're, we don't then go back and say. So how are you doing on that? Or mm -hmm. so how is your manager doing with, you know, changing from the round robin to a more collaborative discussion uh, type of meeting, right? So, and, and unless we hold people accountable or, or at least ask them, and that's, that's the accountability doesn't have to be, oh, we're going to dock your pay kind of thing. It could just be, hey, how's it going? Do you remember that training we had? What have you been able to implement it? How, you know, is it working for you? What's not working for you? You know, basically do the reflection on the training that's mm -hmm. going to encourage them to do reflection. <laughs> so, yeah. So, so Joe, I think I, I want to like dig into that point a little bit, because I think it's a really good one. Um, and I want, I want our listeners to, to think about this because, you know, I think this is particularly um, applicable to some of the, you know, let's, let's say you go through a, a leadership training or some sort of managerial skills training or something like that. Um, I, I agree that oftentimes then, you know, people go back to their jobs and supposedly, you know, there's what we would hope for and, you know, what we would call a transfer of training back to the workplace. We're actually doing something. Um, but oftentimes it, it's not reinforced well. Uh, and there's, there's no real accountability for, Hey, like we just had this great session on how to run meetings that don't stink. And you just ran a meeting that stunk. Let's, you know, <laughs> oftentimes that doesn't happen. In terms what of, happened here? Yeah. Let's, what happened? Let's have a huddle on this meeting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know. Like why, why don't organizations do that? 
Well, it's because they're populated by humans. <laughs> Darn it. <laughs> <laughs> then, then you just came at it. So we're always talking about managers. and like, these guys are not cogs. They're real people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and then, Ben, right. you're like from the happy side. You're just like, well, why can't these managers not be real people? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and so really, it goes back to habituation and context cues. And these are, you know, basic social psychological principles, but things that we, that many of us have heard in our liberal arts education and so forth, uh, but have not translated that into the workplace. Mm -hmm. So we're used to certain things happening a certain way. Uh, and so when we go from the training where we learned about a new way to do things to a situation where we've always done it a certain way, every cue in the environment says it's going to go the same way. It's always gone. It's really, really hard to get over that inertia. It's mm -hmm. really, really hard for a person to say, no, 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 we're not going to do it the same way we've always done it. We're going to do it this other way, right? Particularly if they're the only person who was in the training too. So we train our managers, we go to the meeting and everybody in the room expects a certain script to be followed. Right. Bob, then Susan, then, you know, then Jason, then, then, you know, Samantha, you know, on down, the, we'll go around the room, we do the round robin. And if they don't see that, they're all, they're suddenly, oh, what's going on? It's like, it, it, and so this, it creates <laughs> comfortableness among the people, right? Yeah. And so I think there's a there's a challenge there to habituation and and just context cues and what we're used to doing. And so yeah. we have to fight that constantly, particularly after we get a training where we get really excited about it and then go to an environment where, man, this is the way we've always done it. Right, right. And you know, we as humans, we do crave uh, routine. We crave predictability. Um, at least most of us do to some degree. We want to know, you know, what, what to expect in certain situations. And this is where, you know, social norms and expectations can be very helpful. Um, and yet they also can come at the detriment of doing something differently. Or if we've been, if our routines and our habits are wrong and they, they aren't being helpful in whatever context we're in, uh, then changing those, it presents an additional barrier to change. Agreed. So Chris, you want to give us a little uh, wrap up of some of the things we've talked about today? Yeah, so today we've talked about the contribution of some great social science research on human behavior to the context of healthcare, how learning about how these high reliability organizations can also help us understand more about communication and it's important in creating adaptive, resilient teams and organizations, and some of the implications that these areas of research have for leaders and those around them. So with all that being said, Joe, I guess one last question for you. Um, in general, what do you think about the potential influence that social science research, like the work being done by you and others in fields like industrial and organizational psychology, can really have uh, in the world of healthcare? And we'll let you have the last word. Great. So I think there's an immense opportunity here. Uh, there's a lot of things that are both intuitive and not so intuitive that social science is, has uh, discovered and learned about the way that humans operate, the way that we function as people, the way we interact with each other, and, and how we can, can care for and be good stewards of each other uh, when we have those opportunities. I think the challenge, though, is we, we know these things, and then there's this wonderful thing called the science practice gap. And so uh, it is, it's, we learn all these things, we publish them in, t in these wonderful journals that are that we share with each other in the in our academic uh, silos in our ivory tower, as it were, and then we don't translate that well to others who are actually doing the work that we're we're describing in these in these journals. Uh, and so, I think the the biggest challenge, and one that I think uh, you guys are doing a, a great work here with uh, Indigo Anchor and so forth, uh, is bridging that gap. It's taking that science, that knowledge that that social science has that wonderful information that we've developed over years and saying, let's take the, the most meaningful and best practices that we know here and let's make sure everybody knows about them. Let's get it out there. And so for healthcare, one of the neat things when I got hired uh, here at the University of Utah was uh, they started to have you know challenges with getting grants funded. And one of, the, one of the things the funders were saying to them was, this is really insightful, neat research. How are you going to convince people to do it? You know, do the training, yeah. <laughs> wear the new apparatus, uh, do the new process, whatever it is. How are you going to convince people to do it? You need a psychologist on here to convince people to do that. Well, that's what social <laughs> science is all about. Right. It's and now for the rest of the story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so there you go. 
Awesome. Joe, thank you so much for your time today. This was just tremendous. Um, definitely the research you're doing, which is a lot. If you guys go Google Scholar, uh, which we'll have a link to his stuff and the show notes, uh, you're doing such good work out there and then such a unique niche that you're sitting in. And thank you so much for your time today and uh, for being on our podcast. Yeah. Thanks so much, Joe. It's great. Thanks for listening to the Indigo Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider helping us by rating us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, telling your friends about us, having us on your podcast, or mentioning us on social media. Our website is www.indigopodcast.com, where you can access more information about us and this episode. Thanks again, and we look forward to talking with you again soon.